If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Not, not supposed to, probably shouldn't play favorites with the Bible, but supposing someone dared to play favorites with the Bible, I think a lot of people would say Romans 8. It's a chapter that is as full of glory and hope and goodness and surety and a stable, a stable waiting and hoping as anything. And so, as we begin to read and consider the eighth chapter of Romans, I want us to think about the idea of waiting. Because when Paul's trying to describe everything that's happened, what has been upended because of Jesus? And more than because of what Jesus has done, when we're in him, what changes? So if I said the basics, the pragmatic basics of the gospel to you, and then you said, so what? He's been laboring to say all of the answers to so what? And it turns out that one of the things that changes in Jesus is it changes our waiting. And so it got me thinking, how much waiting is part and parcel to life? No one gets out of it. We're constantly having to do it at some particular measure. And I wondered, Lance, how are you at waiting? Maybe I'll throw you that question too. How are you at waiting? Do you find yourself merely waiting a lot of your life? Because it seems like what Romans is going to tell us, we're going to read about, is that even the act of waiting gets transformed with a kind of sturdy hope. It's, not, it's never merely waiting. But I want you to know, and I confess, that I'm sometimes not very good at waiting. I'll give you one example. We were driving to Tennessee for spring break a couple weeks ago. And you just got to know something about me. I'm irrational about traffic. I despise it with a deep, burning intensity of seven suns. I'm just I'm irrational. When I grew up and learned to drive, you could drive for 25 miles and maybe see two cars and four tractors, and that was it. So traffic, especially the kind of traffic that ends up being no problem. Like, there's just nothing there. I'm irrationally upset about this. So there's a moment we're driving up and we're just got into Tennessee. And, you know, sometimes when the GPS comes alive and it's starting to say things like, we could reroute you. Do you want to accept this new thing? And you're trying to figure out what is happening and I can see the brake lights ahead of me. And there's about a five-second window where I could have decided not to turn around and exit, but there was a, one of those police things in between the interstate, and there's a bunch of people turning around, and I had five seconds, and my phone's going like this, and I'm looking, and I don't know where I'm at, and it's starting to get dark, and I'm thinking, ah, so I made the very cautious decision, and I thought, I'm just going to stay the course. This will probably be a couple minutes, and it's totally fine. And so I zoomed past it, and within about 10 seconds, I regretted every moment of that indecision. Because we sat on the interstate and barely moved maybe a mile or two in over, for over an hour. And you know, some of it's funny because it's just traffic and I got to make jokes about it. But really, it is not a good thing the way that I waited. Or maybe I should say the way that I was not willing to wait. I mean, what a lovely trip we're going on. And everyone's excited. You're escaping and you're going. And I just was really sour about it. I mean, honestly, just sour, just impatient, allowed it to affect not only my mood, but then it starts to impact. You know how that works. It impacts everyone around you. And I look back and I just think to myself, wow, you're really bad 
when you think something should be going differently and it's not. You see, I needed a different perspective. I mean, what did I expect? I'm going to drive nine hours through spring break traffic and everyone's just going to part like the Red Sea for me? But here's the thing. I guess I did think that or something. And I needed to be rearranged in my waiting. And what we're going to look for in Romans chapter 8 is that that idea that all of us experience this sort of waiting and the hope is, is that the gospel begins to transform that you never merely wait, but you hope. And that the balances of your life, if someone asks you, what are you doing or what are you waiting for, that you say to yourself, well, I'm not just waiting, I have hope. And what have you been given in Christ is the question here. So I want us to look for, I'm going to read verse 18 to 25 in Romans 8. And I want us to look for this idea of waiting turned to hope. You're going to see the transformation. Wait, 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 he says, ending with hope, hope, hope. So verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, here's what Paul writes. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Let's take a moment and pray. God, thank you for all that we've already received today. Mercy met us from the opening of our eyes. This day that you set into motion is a gift to us. Help us to give it back to you with wisdom. We ask that you glorify yourself in us and all that we do. God, I pray that here as we've read scripture, that you would be active by your spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, come. We've been given new hearts. We're being renewed in our minds daily. And I pray that all of that would come to bear so that this would not just be a, a teaching or just a waste of time. I pray that you'd help us to see with a new perspective, a little brighter eyes, a little sturdier heart, that we'd be tilted more toward hope and less toward the kind of impatient waiting that we can be prone to. So God, help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting, the idea that we have to wait, the idea that we need to live with some hope and it's not all just here, because we've been designed knowing what we're made for, at least from the deepest of the levels, we know what we're made for, but we don't get to experience it fully yet. And that's just the lot of everyone in life. We had an engaged class, a membership class yesterday, and it was a really great time. It was one of the more full ones that we've ever had, and we barely squeezed everybody in the office, but we shrunk in there. And during the midst of that, we spend a huge chunk in the middle looking through our statement of faith. 
So Brian taught through a statement of faith, takes two and a half to three hours, wonderful questions back and forth, but I'm always waiting. I was going to say I'm waiting for him to be done. Not to be done, but near the end, but near the end, one of my favorite parts comes, and he talks about the idea of end times or the overlap or the kingdom of God coming, and of course you say to yourself, well, end times is great, that sounds amazing, of course, but it's not necessarily the the end times, as much as it is the comparison and the reminder that I get, because what happens is we talk about the age that we live in. In order to get at this, Brian gets to a whiteboard, and when somebody gets on the whiteboard, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm just ready. He draws a line, and it's a timeline, and he says, you know, here's all of, all of history, all that we've, we've known. And way back there at the beginning, there's the fall. And it turns out that the fall affects everything. Scripture says that we all died in Adam. And not only died in our nature, but then as a result of that nature, we all sin. And the fall impacts everything. And you can imagine it like this. Uh, okay, so it's just a line on a screen, but just bear with what I'm imagining. Like a cowboy of death or something. Like the grim reaper on a horse and he's got a lasso. And what he's done is because the fall continues to impact us, we feel the impact. He draws a line from back there all the way up and it just wraps around the timeline. So you with me? Cowboy of death, Grim Reaper. He's, he's, he's like, he's captured us in some ways. And all of us still feel the pull, the pull of the fall. It feels like negative momentum. We're swimming upstream. We feel pain and hurt and sufferings, which he mentioned here. And that is what is referred to in Scripture as the fallen age, this fallen age. But that's not all there is to say about this age. That sounds terrible. Don't we have more to say than that? Yes, we do. Because on the same timeline, the Son of God came into the world and took on flesh, and the kingdom of God invaded and has arrived. It's what he began to preach and proclaim. And so you can draw the cross on the timeline. You think to yourself, wonderful. God has come. Everything now changes. And it will, but it's not there yet. So you can imagine all the glories of heaven over on this side, and they've reached back into the world. So we're going to have a competing lasso. I don't know who this is. Uh, this is John Wayne or somebody, you know, coming in to, to save. And the, and the thing goes, and it just reaches out, and it also grasps at the cross. It, it intersects, and it grasps. And so the Spirit of God is pulling us and prompting us along toward greater glories. But the thing is, is there's a Venn diagram there. You know what a Venn diagram is? Two realities over, overlap, two characteristics overlap. And where those two things overlap, the fall pulling us this way and the real kingdom of God coming this way and reshaping all things and pulling us, we live right smack dab in the middle of those two realities. And that explains why, even though we can say that all has been given to us in Christ and we're new creatures things can still feel so old. And even while we know we're forgiven and we've been set free and declared innocent, man, we can still fight some guilt sometimes. You see, we live in this world of waiting. The kingdom is here, it's already, but it's not quite fully yet. Hebrews tells us that one day all things that, are, that can be in subjection to Jesus will be. They'll all be under his feet. So what that means is the recipe for now in this in-between time is to wait with hope. And what Paul wants to tell people is that what you've given, given in Jesus is a sturdy enough hope to endure. And I'm going to give you a few phrases, I think, that describe the kind of hope that we're looking for in Christ. 
These are the phrases that we're going to look for as we read through this section and look at these verses. First, we're going to say that in Christ there is hope strong enough for suffering. Hope strong enough for suffering. All that the fallenness of the world pulling us back can throw at us, there is hope in Christ strong enough for suffering. Second, there is hope that is deep enough for the soil. It goes deep enough for the soil. And then finally, we're going to say that there is hope that we have that is sourced in the Spirit. It's sourced in the Spirit. And I think that these should be encouragements to us. It's how we're going to transform mere waiting to waiting patiently with hope. So let me start by saying that we have a hope in Christ that is strong enough for suffering. Isn't that what verse 18 says? He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. A few years before in his writing, Paul had written to the church in Corinth something extremely similar. Why don't we just look there as well? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing, us for, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Corinthians says there's a light momentary affliction, like the sufferings of the present time in Romans chapter 8. But compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming, he says, beyond all comparison. Now I have to admit, when I see sufferings and I think about afflictions, I started and I spent a good amount of time looking through all the ways that Scripture has examples of suffering, and I thought, yeah, let's talk about Job, you know, like the, the, the pinnacle of suffering, or let's think about Joseph and all this sort of stuff. But then I thought to myself, if I'm making a huge pros and cons list of the suffering of this world and then putting the glory that's coming to us after it, aren't I just disobeying what Paul says? Because what does he say? He says they're not worth comparing. This isn't an Excel spreadsheet. It's not cowboy of death and John Wayne are barely having a fight and oh no, it's just going to come. I think you'll, you'll barely get out of there. No, he says, you're thinking wrong if this is a pros and cons list. If your Excel sheet is going to give you, a, you know, barely statistically significant, it's not worth comparing. And I thought to myself, what are some things that would be that obvious in my life? I thought, thought about the difference of, uh, of foods. I once saw a survey from NBA players, and they were asking about the best fast food. And there was one player who was insulted by the survey's design itself. And he refused to answer it. He created a another category on the side, and he put Chick-fil-A there. And he said, y'all are crazy. Chick-fil-A isn't even on the same list as Zaxby's or whatever else you got. It's in a tier of its own. In other words, he said, someone said to him, why don't you compare Chick-fil-A to other fast food? And he said, I'm insulted. It's not even fast food. I won't compare it. One time we were eating, this is a confession time, we eat a, we eat a frozen pizza or two at my house. I don't know if you do or not. Sometimes we dabble. And I even cook it. So the best thing to do is, you know, get like an air tray that's got some holes in it, makes it all crispy. So in our life, of searching and discovering and devouring frozen pizzas. One time one of the kids said to me, as we were eating a delicious 
classic crust Red Baron pepperoni pizza. <laughs> One of the kids said kind of confidently, Dad, this is probably your favorite pizza, right? This is the best pizza. And I felt like the NBA player. I was aghast. I'm like, well, well, well hold on. No, 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 this is a different tier. Maybe within the world of frozen pizza, you're on to something. I mean, this is hard to be. This is great. It's really good. It's crunchy. It's spicy. It's a great little frozen pizza. It's wonderful. But you can't insult Chicago-style pizza by comparing it. This is beyond comparison. If you get a good wood-fire pizza at an Italian restaurant or something, you see, it's like a different category of thing. And what Paul's trying to say is he's trying to invite us to say, stop trying to just barely weigh these things out. What is being given to us and promised the glory coming with Christ is categorically different. It wins in every way. And more than that, it creates categories that the other one hasn't even imagined. The quality is so different. Like imagine the Kentucky men's basketball team on one side and then something glorious and powerful and winning like St. Peter's Peacocks. You know what I mean? Just not even worth comparing. And this is the mindset that moves us to hope. I wonder if there's a possibility that the Spirit of God would move us even in the deepest parts of our suffering. When you feel what suffering brings... You imagine the kind of temptations to hopelessness that you have, that you think to yourself, one day, all of this is going to be bound up together and it's going to launch me into a stratosphere where the opposite of this suffering will be so profound and deep, I'll forget that any of this existed. You see, the day is coming when the glory given to us in Christ means every tear will be wiped away. You'll forget how to cry. There is a coming day when death will not even be remembered as a thing where you're not constantly fearing the next MRI or the next diagnosis or the next set of symptoms. And that world that we'll be invited into, that we are tasting right now in Jesus, is so categorically different than anything that we have now that it's a joke to compare the things that we long for with what we have in Him. Now, we're not there yet fully, And suffering is still real. He still calls it suffering. He still says it's an affliction. But what we have in the Spirit of Jesus is the ability to reimagine our waiting and our suffering. And it energizes us. It seems like one of the answers to get through suffering is not to only and ever understand the suffering. Don't hear me wrong. You sometimes need to face the things that you're dealing with. And to understand them and have some self-awareness can be a good thing, but you're not going to power through the suffering like that. Eventually, those disordered affections or those broken, trauma-filled moments in life, you need to imagine and begin to rest in the idea that they're all going to be bound up and redeemed in such a way that you're going to look back and you're going to say, this is more glory than I ever could have imagined back then. And so we mustn't stop at being simply those who understand the suffering. But we're those who have a sturdy hope for glory. And we say to one another, in Christ, there's hope strong enough for this. There is no suffering in the world, no affliction, nothing that can separate you from the hope that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be declared declared inwardly, outwardly, and to one another.
That's what Paul's saying. Now, the question of how deep and how could it possibly be strong enough to get through it goes further when we realize that this hope goes so deep, I said it's deep enough for the soil. What do I mean by that? Well, you may have noted in Romans chapter 8, yeah, it shifts. It's funny. Verse 19 includes something far more than us personally. It says the creation waits. That's a funny thought. It's like the dirt looking up and, and thinking. It has a, he personifies all of creation sort of, and it's waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this brings into view something that is extremely important to consider and to deal with. And that is sometimes we lack hope because we underestimate just how far the impact of Jesus and his redemption goes. What is going to happen because Jesus came and because he lived and because he died and because he rose again, because he ascended and because he seats enthroned at the right hand of the Father? What's going to change? Well, here's the reality. Every single thing you've ever interacted with in your life, the oxygen you breathe, the ground that you step on, the tree that you climbed as a child, the animal that you interacted with, the deer that you hunt, everything will be remade. And this has been a reality from the beginning. In fact, I would want to say it as clearly as this. If your hope is for the peace of heaven, you're not hoping big enough. Do you remember the old song? There's an old song that said something like, I'm just passing through, this place is not my home. You know that song? If I had the tune or I could sing better, I maybe would go there. But just trust me, all of you whippersnappers. There's a hymn that describes this place is not our home. We're just passing through. The reality is you could replace the idea of this earth is not our home with the idea of heaven. Heaven is not your home. You'll just be passing through. It's a wonderful place to await the resurrection of your glorified body. But one day, heaven will be replaced by the eternal living in a new heavens and a new earth. Physicality remade. That means that creation itself is going to be impacted by the work of Jesus. That means that every joy you've experienced here in this world, and God made tons of joys, are going to be multiplied to the point where I don't think they'll be worth comparing either. Oh, you think chocolate cake is good now? You wait. Oh, you think that there's an adrenaline rush and a feeling of satisfaction when something happens and you do good work now. You just you wait until all the creative forces of God's image in you are being exercised in a perfect world, a physical world forever. Just imagine the tomatoes you'll grow. You think loving relationships are good now at their peak. Imagine living in a multiplied honeymoon state forever. I, I meant, that's funny. There's not romantic love. I was using honeymoon as a metaphor. I'll take that back. There's not romantic love. How about this? The deepest and sweetest moments of familial love. Or that time where friendship just feels like, man, this is so great. I feel understood. I feel known. We're serving. This is the thing. Imagine that kind of love and affection, but without the possibility of risk or vulnerability or betrayal. You see, we can't even imagine it. We constantly calculate. When we give ourselves a little bit to someone, hey, let me be vulnerable here, let me tell you what's going on, we're constantly met with and we understand and feel the sting of an imperfect world in those moments. We can't even imagine what it's going to be like to have pure perfection forever. So what an image. 
Here's what Paul says. We should hope like the soil does. In Genesis chapter 3, you probably remember this. In Genesis chapter 3, in the curse to Adam, God says this in verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. What a fascinating passage. That in the moment that the fall takes place, the death and destruction and decay captures everything down to underneath. I wonder what Adam thought in that moment. He was feeling this, and it's like he can feel the ground shake underneath him. Imagine plants, no thorns and thistles, can roll in a bed of roses. We have a citrus tree that has never produced one single bit of citrus on our, by our driveway, but it grows a lot, and I'll have to go up there and I'll have to trim it, and every time I'm in the middle of that tree, I think, this tree is trying to murder me. It is the stabbiest tree on the planet. And I just read this and I think, yeah, thorns, interesting, were they not there? One day, we are going to experience something that we were designed for but have never experienced because of this fall. I always say that mosquitoes are my biggest indication of the fall of sin. They rival terrible traffic for my hatred. Next time you get bit by a mosquito... I'd invite you, join me, and shaking your fist and saying, sin! Sin? It's flying sin to me. That's what a mosquito is. There's a Christmas song. Well known to you, but I have a favorite verse in a Christmas song. Song's well known, it makes sense, joy to the world. You've heard this one? I love the second verse. It says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. You're humming it now. Are you there? You got it? What a profound verse. I love it for a number of reasons. I'll tell this story every time this verse comes up, but the man who founded the missionary base, the place that we spent a couple of years post high school, was a concert pianist, an amazing piano player. He wrote music. His daughter went on, I think, to have a Christian recording career. And for Christmas, he would invite us to his home. And the highlight of the evening is, you know, he's an older man, and so he would start to waddle, and everyone kind of knew, and he'd get his way to the piano. And he would pound out hymns and Christmas songs, and then he would start to play Joy to the World, and his energy level would rise. He might as well have been Billy Joel in the moment. I mean, just putting on a concert. And he would come to this line, and it was a mixture of singing this line but preaching this line. You see, he had a heart to see the blessings flow as far as the curse is found, and what he meant is there's not a square inch of the earth, not a group of people for whom the gospel will not reach them and give them hope. And so he would make us sing this over and over again, and he'd be throwing his arm out like this. How far, far as the curse is found? How far? And then he'd almost be saying like, and God, Azerbaijan, give us Azerbaijan, far as the... And it's just a rowdy, raucous room around the Christmas thing. 
missionaries pouring out their hearts and their lives saying, yes, this is what Christmas is. Just imagine a red-faced person screaming, Christmas, at everyone. That's what it felt like in that room. So there's that, and then doubled on top of that is the, the idea that this verse points to Romans 8, that creation itself is going to be impacted. New heavens, new earth. You see, at one point, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And the heavens and the earth came to existence. And it says, though now, they've seen since the coming of Christ, the Spirit is now hovering once again. The Spirit is indwelling His people. The Spirit is is living and dwelling in His church. And it's like the ground itself can say, like, oh, we know what's coming. Oh, we're groaning with longing. Something new, something good, something beautiful. There is a hope in this world that is deep enough for the very soil that we stand on. And that is exciting. It's a reminder that sometimes we hope too little. Jesus didn't just barely get an escape pod in that some of us humans will just tumble into and then have to go and hide in heaven forever. No, he's coming to make all things new. And finally, There is a hope, and I think an encouragement in the fact that our hope is sourced in the Spirit. The first reason this is hopeful is because it means it's not dependent on us. You might have been hearing this the whole time, and you say to yourself, wow, I feel hopeless sometimes still, though. And if you gave me the job, Lance, here's the thing, just be hopeful. It's not going to last very long. But here's what we're told. We're told that there is a kind of generating hope, spirit inside of us that will never be taken from us. I remember sitting around a fire with my brother in a moment of intense suffering. We'd flown to be with them and we're talking through things and he's part angry and he's grieving and he's crying and we're talking about things and then the matter of our faith comes up. And one of the most astounding things, he's like, you know, it's like both things are true. If I'm honest, I have some anger at God here and some difficulty and all this is going on and I feel very unstable. And yet at the same time, I am so confident that a month from now and a year from now and 10 years from now that I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to want God and I'm going to, be, I'm going to walk with him. And that's some 15 years ago now. He's faithfully serving in a, in a church. And I think to myself, yeah, you see, that's the hope that we have. When you meet difficulty in life, the hope is not go imitate what Jesus did or something. If it was up to you to be the generator of hope, you're just not going to get there. And so what has God done? Well, Jesus said, I'm going to go away. I'm going to ascend to the Father. We're going to send the Spirit. And that hope-generating source of hope-giving Spirit will be indwelling you. And that's encouraging to me because I need it. You know, the second thing that's encouraging about hope sourced in the Spirit is that you don't have to be articulate. There's not a code to crack. If your self-talk is terrible, if you don't know exactly how to describe even what's going on inside of you, it says that this Spirit, one of the things that it can do for you is it can groan. I love that word. Groan. Have you ever been to that place? You ever been undone? You ever been so angry? You ever not understood the traffic in front of you so that you're just doing things like this? Come on. 
Or do you know how you have a connection to God, a spirit inside of you, that even in the moments that you don't know what to pray, even if you're neglecting it, even if you can't get the words out, you're in so much pain and so much anger toward God, or you just don't know what to do, or neglect, maybe not anger toward God, just excitement in the pleasures of life. Oh, there's a spirit that can groan inside of us. What a gift that is. Because we need it. At the end of the day, because we have the spirit of Jesus, we have sturdy hope. Jesus is not neglectful. He's not arrogant. He, he's not speaking something that he doesn't know. Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And we have the spirit of Jesus. Jesus suffered through betrayal and hurt, death itself, and we have the spirit of Jesus. And so it's strong enough to endure suffering. And the ground, when it fights back, and when our bodies begin to decay, when we live in these tents, as Paul says, and the diagnosis comes back negative, and we fear death, and we see those around us being lost, And it seems like all of life is against us. We have the Spirit of Jesus through whom all things came into being. We have the Spirit of Jesus in whom all that is and all that was and all that ever will be find their source and life. When there was nothing and the Spirit hovers over the deep, we find in Scripture that it was the Word that is spoken, the very word that indwells us now. So we can rejoice with creation in hope of new things because we have the spirit of Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus has promised that anyone put into his hand that the imperishable seed given, the fact that we are completely and utterly secure in his love and in his work on our behalf means that we have hope that is sourced eternally. We do not wait, merely waiting. We don't have mere wishful thinking. The Spirit of Jesus groans in us for something better. Let's pray.